Welcome to Built to Play, your dose of video game news and culture. I'm Armin Bali, And I'm Daniel Rosen. This week, Bob returns from internet obscurity, and we're genuinely upset about that, as well as the fate of GamerX. Also, Ubisoft is up to some funny business. Plus, Built to Play, well, Armand, went to PAX East and brought interviews about dance games, point-and-click thrillers, and four-dimensional puzzles. And Sensor Romero from Toronto Gamers tells us about the new Diversity Lounge, while the men who wear many hats teach us how to be the perfect gentleman. But first, turns out China wasn't totally committed to the whole international video games thing. Yeah, so a couple, we, we've been going over this the last couple months, China's recently lifted its 13-year ban on console sales. Um, by, you Basically, you can now sell your console in China if you are working within the Shanghai Free Trade Zone, and you have, basically, if you're manufacturing and selling within that Shanghai Free Trade Zone. That's kind of the only limitation. The main reason they did this is because if you're a foreigner and you're going to uh, to work in Shanghai, or you're going to do business in Shanghai, um, they want you to have the same privileges and luxuries that you might have in the Western world. So this doesn't really affect all of China. Like, you're not going to go to um, a town like Xi'an and suddenly be able to have access to all these consoles. But uh, at least within Shanghai, um, this stuff is going to become uh, more prevalent. Right. Um, so just like the, you know, just like consoles, you still need, if you are a software manufacturer or developer, you still need to be in China or working with a Chinese distributor within that Shanghai free trade zone, uh, the approval process is, is said to take 20 days, but the list of things that need approval basically cover the bases of everything that has been released ever. Uh, so the no-nos include gambling, anything that threatens Chinese national unity, anything, whatever that means, anything that instigates racial or cultural hatred, anything that provo- promotes cults or superstitions, anything that promotes violence, and anything that offends the rights of others. Um, Which, I, I can't name a game that came out this month that doesn't do that. I'm pretty sure Dark Souls is violent <laughs> and has cults. Um, Titanfall is definitely violent. Pretty sure the Titans are a race. Yeah, um, I can't... Let me think. Um, any puzzle games... Uh, oh, no, Tetris is really racist. Tetris is pretty racist, you're right. Tetris is pretty racist. And, I mean, Pokemon's all gambling. So, games must also be published with a simplified Chinese localization, meaning publishers cannot resell games from Taiwan and Hong Kong, which use traditional traditional Chinese characters. Uh, DLC and patches will fall under the same approval process, so you can't, I guess, quote-unquote, fix your game later. It's... I don't know, it seems like a really, sh- really haphazard way, haphazard way to do this, and, like... I get that that's like that's all media in China. Like this, mm-hmm. they all have to follow a similar set of rules. But like a lot of that has, but they a lot of the time have their own. I mean, television and, and movies. Very, you know, Chinese made television yeah. and movies. I don't think there are that many. These are for games coming from outside of China. Yeah, yeah. There aren't that many games that are made within China either. So mm-hmm. I mean, there's a couple MMO companies, there's a couple like mobile game companies, but there's no real like big AAA developers. Right. A lot aside of that from is... maybe like Ubisoft Shanghai. Yeah, maybe, but even those are, you know, not working for internal Shanghai development. Most yeah. most Chinese developers are, you know, like you said, working on mobile games and, and browser games for PC. Yeah, yeah. Um this really fits into like the, this is really just going to encourage the Chinese gray market in the end. I think. Yeah, I mean, there's an old saying that if you're I don't remember who said this, but if your game gets banned in Germany, all that means your sales in Austria go up ten percent. Yeah. <laughs> um, and this seems like the same thing. It's just okay, so it, your game doesn't come out here, but it'll just make its way to China otherwise. Yeah, I mean, it'll go through Hong Kong, which doesn't quite have the same restrictions, or it'll go. Um, uh, it'll find a way, like. 
I don't know. Movies get banned, and ch- there's a very small percentage of movies that ever make it into China. Um, and I think they can something like only ten percent in a in a given season could have a could have American films. But I mean, if you want to watch all of, uh, if you want to watch every Batman movie, even if it didn't come out in the theaters, th- there's a guy down the street selling you pirated DVDs. Yeah, he'll just open his coat and sell you every season of every TV show ever. That's not too like, or like invite you to his DVD basement. China's really gonna have to like. I don't know, put more effort into opening up before this stuff can happen. Um, but, I mean, like, movie companies have also... I mean, there was that whole scene in Iron Man 3 that was just Chinese... Uh, mm-hmm. That had Chinese uh, people in them and actors. Just for the, mar- the Chinese... Wasn't there an entire scene of, of uh, Dark Knight Return... I'm sorry, The Dark Knight that's just in Shanghai? Yeah. I mean, like, there's a bunch of these films that are trying to pander, or at least, like, find ways that the Chinese government be more accepting towards them, even if they... I mean, like... Let's be fair. I mean, Iron Man 3, there's a scene in which a guy tells, uh, in which um, Tony Stark tells a child that it's too bad he doesn't have a dad. Like, um. <laughs> yes, th- but that is ca- accurate to the character. <laughs> yeah, it, no, no, it's totally accurate to the character. But it's also like. He doesn't really give a wedgie to Reed Richards. That, that, like, based on these standards, it shouldn't pass through. Yep. There you go. But because it was filmed in partially in China, it's fine. So we might see maybe a lot more partial Chinese development, like Ubisoft Shanghai. I mean, Mm -hmm. Nintendo just closed a studio in uh, Taiwan. Yeah. So it's possible that they're maybe moving stuff over there. I don't know. I know they do have a distribution deal with somebody in China, the IQ system. Yeah. Um, But I don't think even there. I don't even think even Nintendo games are. I mean, confined. I mean, Animal Crossing's pretty ethnically hateful. Yeah, they. I, I really hate badgers. Zelda promotes um, disharmony and something about violence. Yep, almost certainly. It's gonna stop before we say something terrible. Um, so of terrible things. What? What is this? Okay, so this, I don't even understand this. This, this thing's called. Uh, you you had titled titled it Bob's Revenge. So way back in two thousand eight, Rob Robert Poloni decided he wanted to publish this indie game on the on the DS called Bob's Game. It was a pretty big thing. He did a he said he was going to go on a strike or something. Yeah, and he locked himself, himself in the in a room for a hundred days because to protest Nintendo. Basically, during the approvals process, he hadn't been. He had heard that he probably wasn't getting an SDK, but Nintendo hadn't officially answered back to him yet. So he locked himself in a, in his room for a hundred days. And he's, I don't think that helped his case at all? No, not really. On day 21, he actually started releasing the addresses and names of Nintendo executives, and then kind of creepily wished Reggie fils happy holidays. Um, it was deeply uncomfortable for anybody that remembers this. This was right before indie games really took off. Like, this was right before Braid. This was right around the time um, Barkley Shut Up and Jam Guy Den came out. So this yeah. is like one of the, I mean, he calls it one of the founding indie games, and he's not wrong. It's just that it never came out. He's, it's also, there's, there's no real hint that that game would have been any good. No, but uh, he gave up after day 30. Uh, Pony was actually barricading his room, and a concerned 4chan user, because the internet was a much nicer place six years ago, uh, managed to call his sister, and they called the cops and got him out of there. He sort of disappeared for a year. Um, in 2009, he vandalized a Nintendo World Store in New York City. There that you- is so petty. <laughs> there are YouTube videos of this. Um, Nintendo didn't really react. Um <laughs> He then disappeared again. Nintendo officially refused to give him an SDK. Uh, Reggie said Nintendo still supported the little guy. Um, And, again, Pony just vanished. Uh, He eventually claimed that it was all a marketing stunt. Okay. For a game that never came out? For a game that never, remember, didn't come out. Yeah. Said it was finished, didn't come out. Um, 
In 2011, he appeared again and threatened to launch a console called the ND, which would have Bob's Game as its killer app for $20 and put up a commercial for it during E3. And then disappeared again. And then disappeared. He actually took down the commercial. You can't find the commercial anymore. Um, and then last November, he tried to kickstart it, also called Bob's Game, and was uh, failed and eventually released it on the Ouya or it's something. A, it was a puzzle game, because Bob's Game is actually an RPG about this puzzle game, also called Bob's Game. Okay. So the puzzle game, which is just Tetris, um, it's just sort of a... No- it's Tetris meets Puy- uh, Puyo Puyo, and he released that for Ouya in January. Okay. A few weeks ago, he returned to maintaining his blog where he revealed that he's been ping-ponging across the country from New York to California to his parents' house and I believe uh, Massachusetts, but I don't remember exactly. Um, he says he has found God, sort of, it's really confusing, and claims to understand that all corporations are ruled by evil demons. Um, he repeatedly refers to Bill Gates also as the wizard? Yes, and uh, Seattle, I believe, is the city of gold. I, what? I, I'm pretty, so... I'm pretty sure he's off his rocker. Right. Uh, Most recently, he was living out of his car, eating sandwiches out of the trash behind a Safeway, and building his strengths to work on his game again. You know, like how monks stand underneath waterfalls. Yes. Um, This is spiritual game development training. Exactly. Um... These are actually the least uncomfortable and depressing parts of his story, which I'm still not entirely sure aren't part of an elaborate marketing blitz. I really do recommend reading this blog. It is the longest thing I've ever seen anybody in game development write. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. So recently he started a new Kickstarter for um, the game, and he wants... $10,000 $10,000 for a hack van that he can live and code in while he finishes the game? Um, the only tier you can donate at is $20, which gets you the game and a membership to the online part of the game, because now it expanded to also being an MMO. Oh, no? Um, by the way, here's an excerpt from the Kickstarter. Quote, I learned what humans are truly capable of, discovering that we are indeed magical creatures with psychic powers. It's the greatest trick in history. We are all great wizards, reduced to spending our lives so distracted we never even realize our power. That wasn't from the game description, that was from his life story. (laughs) Um, um, okay. The game is an RPG about a puzzle game that took over the world. Your character, you, is a game designer fighting the evils of Gantendo, the entire co- the evil corporate game industry um he is not known for his subtlety uh poloni calls bob's game the ultimate cult game a new religion for the modern world in the tradition of zelda and the matrix which is a serious thing he says uh he also called himself a self-taught genius prophet <laughs> and that bob's game is a revelation of how the world really works as he says it is the new matrix or bible uh his blog is literally called the new new testament i am not messing with you Okay, so we're just going to – this is a story that we have told you, and now we have to tell you a piece of advice, which is please don't help this guy. Please um, don't give him money. Like, if this is a stunt, this is – We fell for it. Yeah, great job. Um, but the, We're concerned? It, yeah. Um, it, this is totally self-destructive, um, and I, I, like regardless, even if it's a stunt, even if he's actually insane um, – he needs some kind of help. Like, this isn't... Really, reading for... I couldn't mention some of the stuff he writes in that blog uh, just simply because we're on radio and there are children listening with their delicate ears. There's some things... This, this gentleman this gentleman, gentleman, either needs help or... Uh, I mean, help for trying to trick people with this. Yeah. Either way. Don't reward self-destructive behavior. Or bad marketing. Or bad marketing. Uh, I believe as of uh, recording, he has raised a thousand-something dollars of his $10,000 goal. Well... Let's. Uh, I I hate to say I I usually don't say I hope this Kickstarter doesn't succeed, but I don't know for his own like 
Maybe for his own good. Hopefully it doesn't get all the way there. He says that if it fails, he'll go get a real job. So Yeah, well, no, oh. maybe, maybe that job will have benefits and allow him to get like some kind of help. Yeah, well, hey. best of actual luck. Speaking of getting help, um, Ubisoft... Uh, they've run into a bit of a PR snafu. Yes. Um, At a Watch Dogs preview event in Paris, uh, Ubisoft PR was handing out free Nexus 7s to journalists in attendance. So the Nexus 7 is, I'm actually reading these notes for this podcast off a Nexus 7. Which he didn't get from Ubisoft. No, I did not get this from Ubisoft. I got this from someone's I did backyard. get my underwear from Ubisoft, but that is an unrelated field. <laughs> I only wear swag underwear. The, the Nexus runs between um, $150 to $250, depending on the model and the version, whatever. And so this wasn't exactly the world's cheapest bribe. Um, press work for coming about this until some journalists took it to Twitter and asked for confirmation. Uh, GameIndustry.biz European editor Dan Pearson confirmed it, but said that theirs is going straight to charity. Apparently, uh, the fact that they even got the Nexus 7 was under their embargo, so they weren't allowed to talk about it until somebody kind of managed to unveil it. So, and Ubisoft's UK account has officially apologized, and this whole situation apparently wasn't in line with their PR policies. Um, but bribery isn't exactly uncommon in the industry, especially in Europe. No offense to European mm-hmm. writers. And and definitely, I mean, if you just... And this is not, again, this is not a slight at any of those magazines, but definitely future publications uh, set of magazines. You know, they were doing OX... I think they still do OXM, but PSM and, Nintendo, PSM and Nintendo Power no longer exist. Those were, you know, those were publications sponsored by and funded by official companies. Yeah, I mean, so it's not like this stuff is uncommon, but the... It's it's definitely a tricky thing that these guys need to, to get around and kind of talk about it more. Yeah. Uh, OXM's Edwin Evans Thurwell revealed that the tablet was all, yeah, revealed the tablet was part of the embargo. Uh, he says the package also included a leather case, a bottle of water, and a box of mints, which he ate and drank because he's only human. Yeah. Um, but scandal moves really fast these days, and I guess Ubisoft's PR department was like super blissfully aware of how this actually works. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't call any previews of this game actually into question. I mean, it's... The game's been in development in such a long time, and it looks impressive to some extent. Right. Obviously, I can't imagine, like, I would personally think people are being paid off here. Yeah. But I certainly think a lot of fans, when, you know, that they've caught wind of this, aren't going to look at these previews in the same way. Yeah, like, the issue with a lot of these, um, the issue with this stuff is not necessarily that they'll impact the, um, that they'll impact how the game is, uh, is kind of reviewed, but more like that the it'll become like an expectation that some kind of th- some kind of money is passed down to there. I mean, we've had this kind of trouble with advertising. So, for instance, a company might pull advertising if there's a bad review in a given space, and that's been a problem in the past. Um, it kind of pushes. It doesn't tell you, hey, make this game way better, but it does say, hey, look, you'll lose a source of funding if you do this. Again, Nexus Seven, not quite that extreme and I don't think Watch Dogs is going to be impacted by this. No. But it does feel like I don't know. This it feels, be it feels like they weren't it feels like they really weren't thinking about this getting out. Then yeah. again they embargoed it, so maybe they were. Um you know, I honestly I do get stuff at press events when I go. I've yeah. talked plenty of times. I probably mentioned the show that Nintendo gives great food at their events. Um, <laughs> Microsoft gave me a beer stein. But there is a difference between a $5 glass 
and a $150 tablet. To be fair, I did give the Stein away. But regardless of that, I think there is a difference between the swag you get and sending somebody on a plane yeah. is different. I think um, Thurlwell kind of posted, like, there's a difference between putting somebody up at the Novotel and putting them up at the Hilton. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, there, there is very, there's very clearly a moment where it's like, no, we want you here to look at her game, and we want you comfortable while you look at her game so you're not, like, grumpy. Yeah. Um, but we don't want to make you think, like, you have to. Yeah. I don't, you know, I think these companies keeping me well-fed during their preview events is simply them saying, it's like, if you're grumpy, you're probably going to hate them whether or not it's good. Yeah, yeah. It's it's more about, pr- like, getting a better environment. Because if you walk into a space and you haven't eaten or you're in a bad mood, I mean, stuff like that it makes you more, it makes you more neutral, to be honest. Like, mm-hmm. it doesn't make you more positive. It just makes you, like, less inclined to just, like immediately hate something and a lot of these preview spaces aren't the world's most pleasant spaces they're kind of dark and, yeah. and cramped and it's a bunch of monitors and a whole bunch of you know reporters kind of huddled together over one or two monitors and like you're getting the same speech you've heard a hundred times like they've given a hundred times so it's kind of it's not exactly all that impressive and exactly it's kind of lackluster um so I, I don't think again like you said i don't think that that a, this tablet is going to make anybody write differently but i think it's going to alter the way you know, readers see this yeah. coverage, and I definitely think it alters the way their the, these writers' relationship is with Ubisoft. Simply because they think it's, I don't think they will be affected, but I think it is definitely weird to think that you expect, yeah, that Ubisoft expects them to to, to say something nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, but yeah, so hopefully they manage to 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 not do that again, and I don't know, rethink their at least the European branch of PR. Um, but speaking of things that are, have gone away, um, GamerX looks like uh, this will be the last year. Yep. Uh, according to GamerX's Matt Kahn, the queer gaming con, will be playing its last show in San Francisco. It's actually its second show. Uh, quote from his blog post, This year we went all out with the venue and going to three days and the cost skyrocketed. And although attendance had been doing well, corporate sponsorship was just not at a level to sustain this this huge uh, event, I suppose. It was, a, sorry, bad pasting. Hmm. Um, we're taking on a huge risk of debt, and even if we do end up selling out, we will barely break even. So, I mean, this is not all that much of a surprise in that uh, conventions are often reliant on corporate sponsorship. It's how those billboards outside the convention that are advertising some random product that you've never heard of or a TV elite, show that's coming up. Alienware gear. Yeah, elite Alienware gear, new egg with what with like uh, Oh, that was, that was Yeah, it was it was new it was elite new egg uh, Hunger Games post-apocalyptic survival computers. Yep, yep. Or um, the, there was a bunch of ads for this game called Wa that was for this MMO that was I don't know ne- I'd never heard of before. Like that stuff that helps pay for the convention. Um, it's not just about getting the people in there. So th- as it turns out, this kind of thing is expensive. It's right. hard to, especially in the 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 region they're in. So, yeah, and I mean to be fair, I think GameRex specifically is sort of a labor of love. Yeah, it's it's the kind of thing they're doing because they understand that the community needs a space like this. Yeah, um, and I just the interest isn't there from corporate sponsors, which sucks. Uh, meanwhile, we have four packs a year. Yeah, it's <laughs> the new ones in San Antonio. It's not Whoop-dee even Austin. Um, they're not ruling out. Con isn't ruling out future events. Um, they'd have to be sustainable and incur less financial risk than this year's event, but it's not impossible. 
Um, this year's GamerX was actually partially funded on Kickstarter to the tune of $24,298, more than double its initial goal, but that's not nearly enough to cover a convention space, especially not in San Francisco. No, no. GamerX is, is, as an organization, will continue to exist and promote queer causes and games, but it really sucks to see a young, important show die like this. Um, we need more GamerXs in the world. Uh, it, I mean, it's also a factor of other conventions have kind of, they now have... A, spaces to some extent for mm-hmm. this stuff i but mean it's it's never quite no not robot well, right it, it's not it, it's a little bit half-hearted i think yeah it's ro- it's obligatory and not necessarily like it's not embracing it as much and with that that's it for news this week Hi, this is Armin Bali. I'm standing right now on the, right outside the expo floor to PAX East 2014. It's teeming out here, and it's Saturday, and it's super busy. So you want to come along with me, and we'll listen to a couple developers talk. On April 10th, Built to Play flew to PAX East to check out some new and upcoming games. We have a couple short interviews this week, all from PAX. First up, a Dutch game that gets you dancing. Game Oven in the Netherlands is all about using games to start human contact. If that sounds awkward, it kind of is. One of their last games forced you to interweave your hands with another person while music from a 70s porno played in the background. That game was Fingal. Without making any real social taboos, it still felt really intimate to rub your fingers against someone else's. Their newest game, Bounden, is all about tricking you to dancing. It's sort of like Twister meets ballroom dancing. I got to try it on the show floor and made a complete fool of myself. Turns out I'm not the best dancer. Elena Murez tells us more. Yeah, we're working together with the Dutch National Ballet, and we thought, okay, if we want to make a dance game, uh, we got to find a choreographer because we're not dance designers, we're game designers. So we figured, okay, let's just shoot for the big guys and just we basically just called them, hey, we want to make a game. Are you guys interested? And they said, okay, come on over. And that's how it happened. How does working with a choreographer in a game like this work? Like, what, what kind of input did he have? Well, it's, it's like two worlds coming together. Like, the ballet world is, is very different than the, than the game world. So, basically, the choreographer comes up with the, with the dance. And then uh, he uh, teaches that the dance to the, the dancers at the ballet. And they are performing it really slowly. And we have a dance editor on the phone. So we're next, right next to the dancers, like uh, placing uh, the markers on the ball, like creating the dancers right next to each other. So that's how we end up with dances in the game, because you can really program this into, into the game with a computer. It's really hard because we're using the gyroscope. So how did you guys come up with, like, for instance, you have the, uh, you need the unfilled circle to match up with the gap. How did, how did stuff like that come up for ways of making the player move to um, the actual choreography? Well, we have another game called Friends Trap, and that was about two people holding the phone for as long as possible. And the, um, the first one that, that lets go loses. So what people would do is actually trying to to let the other uh, player let go. So they would really awkwardly try to move in uh, so that the other player would let go. 
And that was really interesting because it made us think like, um, what would, like what would, what would happen if we actually made people slowly dance like that? And um, so that's how we how we came up with with a dancing game. And then we started to look for ways how to do that. And that's really hard. Like we made a ton of prototypes, and we ended up with a ball that you circle around. And there's markers on the ball, and you're trying to hit those markers by moving the phone up and down and in all kinds of directions. So dancing is incredibly socially awkward. Um, how do you? It is scary to, to dance with another person. How do you intend to uh, kind of throw that out there as a game mechanic? Well, it's it's really based on your personality. I mean, here at PAX, we we get people that that are like, oh, I'm just watching, or maybe later. And there are also people that are really like all over the place and really wildly moving here. And that's really great to, to see. And sometimes people are first a little hesitant and then I'm explaining and showing them what we can do. And then they slowly open up and start to move more freely, so. So how complex do the dances get? How, com how complex do the dances get? Versus com how, how does a dance in this game compare to like a real life dance that you would have uh, for your program? Well, obviously we start really slowly and easy with not a lot of hard moves, but eventually you can like twist together and, and really practice together to get a performance. So we want this to be a performance-based game as well. Yeah. So part of a big part of dance is music. So how does is is there a music component to this game as well? Or yeah, we have a composer and he's uh, writing uh, classical music for this game. Again, hear it right now. But we do have uh, we do have music in it, and it's also really all the dances are based on the music. So there's timing involved and precision. Is there any? Do you get punished for not dancing as well? Like, how does the? Is there any? Is there a score associated with it? There is no punishment, but there is a score system. So at the end of the uh, of the dance, you can see how many markers you hit. If you missed any, uh, how your timing was. And there is also rehearse mode, so you can rehearse uh, certain sequences of a dance and get the timing right. How is it like playtesting this? I'm at, I'm, I can all I can see is a lot of people fooling around. Yeah, we're still playtesting, and it's it's really interesting. I mean, some people just don't get it, and some people are like all over the place and, and instantly dance with each other. There's no, they just get it. What we do um, know is that gamers tend to get it more uh, more fast, faster than than uh, someone who has never played before. But we really want this to to be something that anyone can play. So we're still iterating and and like making the game as good as possible. So usability is a big thing for us. So uh, what does the play test look like? Do you guys have just a, a room back home with uh, with guys who come in and play, play this? No, we're with really small developers. So we only have one office, but we're in a really cool building called the Dutch Game Garden. And that's a building in the Netherlands, which has like uh, four floors, and there's over 40 game developers in in that building. And 
we can just get a room there and get two people to play and we're just they're just dancing there and we're just like right next to there taking notes and explaining the game to them so do you ever have to stifle a laugh sorry do you ever have to stifle a laugh um yeah well i don't stifle laughs i just laugh <laughs> so here at bax of course uh people look silly doing this and i just laugh at them i mean i'm having a great time here <laughs> All right, all right. And last question, how intuitive is it for actual dancers? Uh, actual dancers really like it, actually. So they're really surprised. I mean, it's not something they ever thought of before. But they're really, uh, really enthusiastic about this. Yeah. Have you seen, is it easy for them to kind of uh, attach that to then like actual dance moves that they've, they've practiced? Well, obviously, there isn't much leg work involved with this. so. Um, they can come up with additional moves, like the Dutch National Ballet is also going to perform with this on stage and they're adding a lot of ballet moves to it, like, like dancing on their toes, stuff like that. Where can people see that performance? Um, well, we have something lined up in the Netherlands, but hopefully we can also come to America. It's, it's also based on reception and what they can do. Alright, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Bounden is available on iPhones and Android everywhere, May 21st. Elena Mures is a producer at Game Oven. Speaking of awkward, Daniel, I thought I'd ask you this now. So, if we survived a plane crash uh -huh. and landed in the middle of a forest, what would you do to survive? I would kill you and eat you. I see. Wait, 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 wait. Um, you'd eat me? Yeah, come on. Letting your body rot would be a waste of meat, and there is definitely more skin on your bones than on mine. Oh, uh, uh, right. Um, well, I, I guess gods will be watching is the game for you? Oh, yeah. Gods will be watching is all about dealing with extreme situations, like, for example, being trapped with nothing to eat. The developers at Deconstruct Team call it a point-and-click thriller. It's a series of extreme situations in one man's life where you're forced to decide between life and death. Jordi DePaco is a director, and he tells us why he made a game why ca where cannibalism is one of many options. It's about moral dilemmas and hard decisions in order to survive. It's some sort, it's very focused on storytelling and it's some sort of dramatic puzzler. For example, today we're showing a survival scene where you have to manage your food, uh, your ammunition, the moral theme. And for example, another day we were showing a hostage situation where you have to handle hostages, negotiate with the police and hack into a database. Or for example, enduring 20 days of torture like managing your torture psychologically by talking to them. So yeah, it's some kind of uh, tough situation simulator. And the good thing about the game is that you can complete all the game without making any sacrifices. Everybody can be alive. But the time to make sacrifices comes when you, you make bad decisions. Like you didn't manage, okay, the food. So you're in a situation like the engineer finished repairing the radio and we don't have any food for the rest of the team. Let's kill him and eat him. Uh, some, some kind of that kind of gameplay. That's pretty extreme. That's a that's a pretty bad mistake to make. Um, how far of how far are we t endings are we talking about? From you, you mentioned cannibalism, but like, what is there a medium option where everyone just end, where maybe one person dies of a disease versus um, instead of like you know like actual cannibalism? Um, well, the game is trying to explore a lot of different 
ethical problems. Like uh, in one scene, you have to do human experimentations to find out the cure for a virus, like generating compounds and injecting to your partners and see what it happens. So yeah, we're trying to explore a lot of different things in this game. So with the number, what kind of, what, what's the number of scenarios are okay. you working with here? The game has six chapters and all of them are connected through cinematic sequences, so part of a big story that it's about seven years in the life of the main character. Okay. And with, how do you, you mentioned that it's a thriller. How do you build up tension? Sorry, come again? If you said that it's a thriller, right, and we have all these moral choices. How do you build up this tension? Um, I, I didn't get it, I'm sorry. How do you make it, how, what makes it so this game so tense or thrilling? Oh, okay. Well, it's just, I think the difference is like, it's not just about, like in some games, like pop-up decisions, like are you going to be good or are you going to be bad? Or are you going to save him or are you going to save her? The game is about, this is your fault and you didn't manage the situation correctly, so you pardon the consequences, and now you have to solve what you, what you blow up. Can the game end before you reach the final chapter? Uh, yeah, sure. If every chapter you can die a lot. Actually, it's part of the mechanics. Every time you die, you learn something new, so you are stronger to not repeat the same mistakes. And there are a lot of mistakes to do, so yeah, it's a game about failing a lot. So, what what are some of your your favorite endings? That, without spoiling too much, what's something? What's the most interesting thing you've seen people do here at PAX? Okay, here at PAX, yeah. um, I don't know. I, I think both of three scenarios are are unique. So we set them on different days, so players can get uh, some sort of feelings of what the game has to offer. But if I I have to choose, I would mean that the original. Like the survival scene is my favorite because cannibalism is so so extreme. It's like, yeah, you have torture, you can lose your friend or uh, see amputations or something like that. But we're very used to violence in games. But cannibalism is like some step further. So you mentioned that there's no, that part of this is that there's no good or bad options. Yeah. It's just decisions. Why go? Why make a game in that direction? What was what was the cause? Of well, uh, actually, this game came from a game jam. It was developing just a weekend, and it, it grew up from the feedback we saw from players. It's like uh, it was a huge success, the original prototype, and a lot of gameplays appeared on YouTube. So we got to see what how players interacted with the game and what we were expecting from the game. And we also saw that a lot of conversations were initiated on internet forums, and it was like. On the first day, you have to kill the dog. So, uh, what are you saying? The dog is so cute. You don't have to kill him. And it was so interesting that we are trying to empower of that discussion. And it's just not about being good or or wrong. It's just like some people think that killing a dog is justified for saving five persons, and another prefer to kill an engineer before killing a dog. So, yeah, it's that's some kind of let's see what people do. That's not. Uh, set a path for them. Yes, let them evolve uh, as the game continues. So you mentioned it started as a game jam. What, what was it? What did it look like in its original state? Well, the original prototype was developed just in a weekend, and it was the, just the survival scene with the snow and the players. So the theme of the game jam was minimalism. So we tried to do an adventure game that happened in only one shot scenario. So 
it just like we got lucky. It's like let's do this and let's add, add this and let's see how it works. And surprisingly, it got really well. So now we are really focused on how to expand this kind of experiences. But yeah, the, the original one was pretty similar. It's absolutely playable online now at godsfullywatching.com. So you can, it's a, a close feeling of how the game is going to be. What's the greatest sacrifice you can make so far? Oh, well, um, kill everybody and save yourself. That's always the biggest sacrifice. Even It's not a sacrifice, it's just a way out of uh, tough problems. But yeah, in all stages you can do like crazy things like selling out your partner and leave yourself on the torture or executing off the hostages to get the situation under control. Yeah, you can be pretty radical. Actually, if you don't have feelings, the game becomes a lot more easier. So actually being pragmatic or a sociopath um, actually makes the game a lot more simple. Yeah, I think they're going to be the top players. <laughs> actually, we're, we're going to include a online statistics system for the game so you can see how you did and how the rest of the people did. So we can learn the authorities if we detect psychopaths. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I want to thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Drew DePaco is the director of Deconstructing, and they are based in Valencia, Spain. Gods Will Be Watching will be out in June. So long as we're thinking in extreme, let's think about the fourth dimension. Imagine a hypercube. Nope, I can't. That's like a cube where each face is a cube, but the cubes rotate depending on which perspective you view it in, right? Maybe. I, I don't know much about physics, but Mark Ten Bosch does. Mark is making a game about exploring the fourth dimension called Miyagakure. The game lets you move through multiple dimensions in a puzzle game. You attempt to climb cliffs or jump over rivers by finding shortcuts through alternate dimensions. The game is built in 4D, though it only renders three dimensions at a time. You really have to think differently to move through the world, which is exactly what Mark is going for. So, it says in the title, Puzzle Platform in Four Dimensions. What does that mean? So it means that at any moment you're only seeing a three-dimensional slice of a four-dimensional world. So kind of like when you see a, an MRI and an MRI looks like a two-dimensional slice of a three-dimensional object, this is a three-dimensional slice of a four-dimensional world. So how do you manage to program that geometry into the game? Uh, so when you program a three-dimensional game, every point, every object has a position and that position is represented with three numbers which is basically how far in each direction the object is. And so in this game, every object is represented, its position is represented by four numbers. Uh, and then uh, to display it, because we only display three dimensions, uh, we need to sort of get rid of some, some of the information, which is, and so we just like slice through the world to do that. Um, and so that sort of gets rid of one of the numbers, basically. So, uh, do you require any special software to kind of put this together? Do you require any kind of special rendering software to put this together? Um, so, it's our own engine that we wrote from scratch, basically. And uh, some of the objects that are rendered procedurally, like, I'm, I mean, are built procedurally, some of the 40 objects. Because it's really, you know, like, it's going to be hard to, like, really, like, be very purposeful when you're, you're building something in 4D. But, and then other objects we just build in 3D and then we copy them over 
to get that to give them four-dimensional depth, basically. So there's a bunch of different ways that we approach the problem. I notice a lot of the geometry in the game is kind of based on the square grid. Is that a because of uh, the limitations of kind of having to deal with four dimensions? No, uh, I mean it's it's a gameplay thing, right? It's like you know you've got all this four dimensional space and you want it to be tractable for people. So you want to have very small levels with a limited number of interactions that are possible, and so that's why it's like on a grid with like a very few, like a four by four. Uh, you know, on the on the ground size, right? Um, so it's very much like it's not like a technical limitation. It's like definitely like part of the design to make it tractable for people. How do you wrap your own head around? How do you wrap your own head around um, the, the way the world shaped? Um, so for me as a designer, or for players. So the way you think about it is like, okay, so. There's this grid of blocks, right? And so just like Minecraft has like a three-dimensional grid, we have a four-dimensional grid. And really what that means is that you can think of it as a bunch of worlds that are like next to each other. Um, so, so I don't know, if you know Link to the Past, it sort of has the dark world and the light world. Here you can have like as many worlds as you want. But it's like, it's basically that. It's like a bunch of parallel universes and like your position in one uh, kind of uh, is like next to your position in the other. Right? So how did you get started on a game that relies on four dimensions? So what I did is, uh, as a programmer, like I said, I was like, oh, well, you know, representing three numbers, what it would be like if it was four numbers, right? What would that even play like or look like? And uh, I started researching it, and I found that there's this like a lot of literature on like, what could you do if you could move in 4D, right? Uh, what what sorts of miracles can you accomplish? And I was, it made me realize that, that that's perfect for a video game, right? Because video games are all about like allowing you to do things that you can't do in real life, right? So. Is there any kind of spatial geometry that is that you can only accomplish within uh, 4D? Yeah, there's a bunch of things that you can do, right? So, like, for example, so each level is based on something like that, right? So there's, um, if there's a wall and it's too tall to, you know, uh, jump over or go around because it's too long or whatever, uh, you can go around it in the fourth dimension. Uh, and same thing for, like, if there's a closed container, it's, like, closed on all sides but it's not closed along the fourth dimension, so you can just go inside of it without opening it. Uh, and you can take things out, too. And then other things also, for example, um, if you have two rings, you can bind the two rings without breaking them by moving them in the fourth dimension, so. So stuff that's basically impossible in real life. It is, yeah, yeah. And in this game, is like totally part of the gameplay system, right? It's like, not, we're not cheating in any way, right? So, now on top of all this, you have this Japanese aesthetic. Why match 4D with this old uh, feudal era? Aesthetic? Yeah. Um, I feel like it's a difficult question to answer, like, briefly. But there's this whole, like, theme around the game of, like, transcendence and... Uh, like meditation, things like that. So it sort of made sense to make it uh, Japanese-based, but also um, 
the name actually came like really early into the into the project like I almost like knew the name before and I, I, maybe at the same time as the game and the name is like this Japanese term um, that they use in gardening and it's uh, it's a term that refers to the technique where you you can't never see the you can never see the whole garden at once um, so it's always blocked from your view and you're always imagining what you can't see right uh, and so it makes the garden feel larger and I was like well it's so, so perfect for like this game where you can never see the whole level at once you're only see, limited to seeing three dimensions out of four so it sort of evolved from there what of what you can talk about what do you think is particularly beautiful that you well, you you know, we released the trailer like a couple days ago, and at the end, there's a you know a four-dimensional object that's uh, it's basically a four-dimensional platonic solid, and uh, you can just it's it's it fills the whole level, and you can walk around it and uh, you know appreciate all this for it from every direction, right? So I feel like that's like that's one of the most beautiful things in the game. What's a platonic solid? Hmm? What's a platonic solid? A platonic solid is, uh, um, it's like a, you know, cube, icosahedron, dodecahedron. It's like all the faces are uh, regular, like they have the, you know, uh, they're symmetrical, basically. So, so in 4D, it goes, it's recursive. It's like all the faces are actually three-dimensional objects. So this object, for example, has 120 dodecahedron. So the Kihidra has, fa has faces, yeah. That is pretty intense. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, sure. Mark Ten Bosch is a game designer based in San Francisco. The game will be available for at least PC, Mac, and Linux in the future. So PAX isn't known for its diversity. Even at PAX Prime, founders Michael Hulick and Jerry Holkins have said things that are, at best, misogynistic. I think that pulling the Dick Wolves merchandise was a mistake. The Dick Wolf controversy has only gotten worse since it started, so PAX East launched a diversity lounge. It's supposed to help make up for a lot of the comments they've made and showcase LGBT communities and women's groups in video games. Samson Romero volunteers with Toronto Gamers and was helping run the booth at PAX East. Well, I'm with the Toronto Gay Gamers. We're an LGBTQI um, and everything else in between a social group uh, based out of Toronto. Uh, we were invited here to be part of that diversity to talk about, to, you know, talk about our group and what we do because it's like in gaming culture, uh, LGBT reference, there's like, there are some, there are issues with like homophobia, transphobia and biphobia and all those other phobias within game culture. And how do you successful do you think this hub has been so far? I think it's very successful. If you look around you, um, people are talking to each other. There's a lot of dialogue going on. We get a lot of questions. We met a lot of Toronto people who didn't even know our group existed. I was like, okay, so I guess someone, I guess, I'm talking to my PR people about that. But it's really good because we get the dialogue talking, you know. We talk with the group. A lot of people we've talked to, um, they're like, oh, this, this is really cool. This group exists. Does my city have one? I'm like, no, we're not really a national organization. We're very localized. But I'm sure other, I know other cities have their own chapters and divisions. And, I mean, part of the reason this was set up was because of some disparaging comments that were said in previous packs. Do you think that this kind of, um, this kind of thing makes up for a lot of the, the phobia that were done earlier on? 
I think it does. Um, it's an acknowledgement that you know this dialogue has to happen. Uh, we could do panels. I was at a panel yesterday on how to end hate and discrimination and vile on the internet. And you know what? Compared to other panels, which were you know there wasn't really a lot of people, and I was like really surprised because let's be honest, on YouTube, what's the first? What are the comments that get talked on people's YouTube videos? It's either first or homophobe, homophobe, racial slur, or you're a sexist comment like you're a woman, which is not a bad word, you know, type of thing. And so. What, ha what for those who can't who can't see this place? What does this place look like? Um, and what is it? How, has how busy has it been? It's really busy today. It's Saturday. Uh, there's the beanbag area. Uh, I think Gabe from Pe for, from Pax is here, the founder. He's actually teaching his game. And I think it's pretty cool doing a demo. Uh, Benjamin's here. He's one of the organizers of this hub, and it's really amazing. Queer geeks. There's queer uh, cosplayers of color. BenCon, uh, Magic the Gathering, a uh, women's planeswalk. Oh, what's it called? Ladies Planeswalker Society, uh, trans groups are here too, and I think it's really amazing. And Able Gamers as well. So it's and some other uh, LGBT friendly uh, businesses and geek related uh, bookshops and shop. Like uh, I think uh, Capitol Hill Billies is here. I just met a lot of these people, and it's like they're really cool. I never knew they existed, so they didn't know we existed either. So, what do you hope people take away from uh, this diversity hub, and like you being here in general? Sure. I hope people get an understanding of a dialogue. We start talking about it. They start questioning things a little bit, especially parents who, when their kids say, Mom, Dad, that's so gay. And they're like, wait, what do you mean by that? I know my cousins, they tell their kids when they say that, you can't say that. It's not appropriate. And having a dialogue, it's not like, you know, we, we do homophobic, like, you know, sexuality theory 101 with Foucault. X. No, it's just very much, you know what? That's being used in a negative context. That needs to end. And this is why a nice friendly conversation once they know especially with kids once they know that you know that's not acceptable because someone's getting hurt and that's actually we don't say racial slurs freely without consequence and same thing should be with homophobic or transphobic or biphobic slurs you know it has to be acknowledged that you know that's not really appropriate and even with sexist slurs too like you know that's not a bad word and the way we challenge is by talking to people i don't believe in condemning people i don't think people when we say we go high horse like no you can't say that censorship censorship i don't believe in that but I do believe that we have to have a dialogue and people understand it because they start learning. Once they're learning, start unlearning stuff they've probably learned negative before. Why do you think that the reaction is has been so harsh and so f uh, so filled with transphobia, homophobia, and all these different kinds of things um, prior to, well, ongoing? Uh, from my perspective, it's a lot of it is uh, what was developed from game culture. It was the same as primarily male-dominated. There are some class issues involved in that as well. Uh, to play video games, let's be honest, you need to have money. So it's like exclusive club where it's like, oh, we're open, but, you know, but we don't want you involved. And that could be for whatever reason, maybe from like cultural, societal learning. I mean, I'm not too sure about that. I'm, I actually haven't researched that far yet, but a lot of it would be, you know, it's taught. Um, a lot of it's just they don't know. A lot of it is ignorance. And I'm going to probably, it's my big assumption, a lot of it will be coming from ignorance. Um, they may say it from malice, but they may not necessarily know what those words mean. Or that the, the discourse they're saying, you know, it's not, it's not how she put this nicely. <laughs> they just don't know. And then that's not an excuse. You know, when you break the law, like I speed, I speed, I didn't know the speed limit, but you don't know the speed limit. That's not an excuse for not trying to learn. And do you think that things have been changing over the last couple of years? Yes and no. Uh, a lot of it is changing slowly because we're more vocal, we're more out there, we're challenging things, which is a big thing. We are, we're actually saying, actually, that's not appropriate. Why are you calling me that on Call of Duty? Why are you saying that, you know, on, you know, any first-person shooter games? I know a lot of my, my group members will not play first-person shooter games because they think it's vile and disturbing and because of homophobia, and that's really unfortunate. 
you know? Like, honestly, I, I don't play first-person shooters anymore because of that, because I'm like, I'm not welcome here. I, like, there's only, like, so your mom and, F, like, hey, F-word, or, you know? And also my female friends, too. They're, especially when someone identif- one of my female friends, when she identifies as, says, I'm actually a woman. They're like, go make me a sandwich. And I'm like, really? Really? That's really immature, and that's not appropriate. They're like, but I'm just kidding. And that's actually still, that's not really kidding, because you hear it once, you hear it twice. It's like saying, you're not welcome here. Even though they may not, that may mouth the attention, they were joking, but there's power in words. They don't know that. We know it does. What, what are some positive things that you have seen occur? Uh, in gaming culture? Yeah. Uh, a lot of people are stopping it. People are saying, hey, that's not cool. I know some of my gamers, my members, who are making their own guilds to tell people, I guess not to tell them off, but say, you know what, we've just beat you. You got beaten by a boy. Uh, I mean, that's okay, but I wish they had more dialogue, but you know, it's a bit hard on the mic where you're like, <laughs> we killed your team, ta-da, and there's no dialogue there. But from here, just having this hub itself is, I think, a great step in us talking to people. Uh, people here have the choice of coming in. We hope they come in. I mean, it's fun. There's candy. We have kisses. Like, we have chocolate kisses. We had a lot of buttons. We had a game up button. A lot of our buttons are almost gone. I think they're all gone now. So, I mean, so just having the dialogue, anything, talking about online culture, people saying, just challenging it in their own way. It may not be a big revolution, you know, woohoo, we're going to revolutionize. Just so people in their own communities, in their own culture, saying, hey, that's not appropriate because of this. And I'm not saying censorship, but I'm saying open dialogue more. Thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Samson Romero is one of the board of directors at Toronto Gamers. You can find him at torontogamers.ca. That's gamers with a G-A-Y. Last but not least, let me leave you one of the funnier games at PAX East, Max Gentleman. It's a game about stacking hats on shirtless dudes and Victorian dames. They were holding a contest for a body pillow at their booth, and apparently it caught a lot of people's attention. People were crowding around for a chance to win a magnificent body-length body pillow. Designer Ryan Weimer tells us all about it and some of his awkward spam emails. So Max Gentleman is in a cart... Max Gentleman is an arcade-style game uh, where you drink beers and stack hats. Okay, so how did you guys get started on this premise? Because it's pretty unique. Uh, So originally we got a spam email for penis pills and it was entitled Max Gentleman. And so we thought, what is a Max Gentleman, right? And so... um, we decided it was overly manly men who flex and their shirts rip off and they have tattoos on their chest that say like queen and country or like manners or gentlemen and stuff like that. Um, and we actually had planned to do a much bigger game. We wanted to make a world out of this, but um, we ended up doing a this version, basically the hat stacking version uh, for a game jam to put the game in an arcade cabinet in Chicago um, for a drinking themed game jam. Um, and everybody really liked it. And so we're like, oh, okay, we should probably make this into a better game. And so that's basically what this is now. So now we have our own arcade cabinet for it. And, um, yeah, it's, I, I'm really happy with how it's come out. So the aesthetic is distinctly um, Victorian. Yes. Why go for that era? Um, because when I think of gentlemen, I think of shows like Downton Abbey or, you know, like Sherlock Holmes era stuff, just like very prim and proper, right? And so gentlemen makes me think Victorian. And how long have you guys been working? Um, so we made it, I believe, in December of 2012, perhaps. I don't remember how time works very well. 
Um, and that was about a month. And that's when we did the Game Jam version. We took it to PAX like four months later. People liked it. And so when we went, okay, well, we need to work on this. So now it's been almost a year on and off. We've been doing a lot of other stuff. But um, my guess is maybe about six to eight months full-time work. And do you plan to build this out further, or is this how it is? Um, I really like the franchise of the game. We actually have a lot of other ideas that we would like to do in the same world with the same characters. Uh, but as far as hat stacking games, I think we have reached the limit of human uh, bounds on what can be done for stacking hats and drinking <laughs> beers. At least I would like to think so. Um, where did you guys get the art from? Um, so actually, the original arcade version, um, I had a friend who just wanted to be, I have some experience in the uh, in game industry. Her name is Sarah Dennis. And uh, so I was like, oh, then help me out with this game jam. And everybody really liked the art from the original, even though it was like sloppy and fast. And I said, all right, well, we'll have to bring her on to do all the art for the full version of the game. And so um, we've been working her to death to uh, work on this because it's got like a big pile of characters, lots of environments, and uh, she has a very painterly style, so it takes quite a while. How do you win? Um, so if you play multiplayer, it's just whoever has the most hats after two minutes. Uh, if you play single player, it is an, truly an arcade game, so high score. Um, on this version, we have a high score board. Whoever gets the high score for the day wins a body pillow. Um, when we release this on like iOS and Android and Steam and whatnot, there will be a, a more fleshed out leaderboards. Um, and why body pillow? Why not? Um, honestly, we were thinking, what are some amazing gentlemanly things we can do with these slightly over-sexualized men? And so Body Pillow, of course. How much interest have you seen in the Body Pillow? Uh, more than the game. <laughs> no, uh, honestly, everybody's like, where can I buy this Body Pillow? And we're like, we aren't selling it. Uh-oh, we probably should have brought a bunch extra. Uh, unfortunately, Body Pillows are very expensive to make. And these are just the covers, so. How, wait, how expensive is it? I forget, but I think somewhere between 60 and $75. Wow. Yeah, um, but I think I might have got a discount because I ordered it in bulk. Okay. But maybe next time I'll bring a bigger pile because everybody seems to love them. But if you absolutely want one, high score of the day wins the body pillow. Um, and final power question: uh, How have you seen anyone at PAX so far that would match the description of a Max gentleman? Uh, yeah, you generally um, Professor Layton cosplayers match the bill. Actually, last year we had a sexy Professor Layton. And so it was a gentleman who was ripped with no shirt on and a giant top hat. And we were like, that guy's basically cosplaying Max Gentleman. But he was <laughs> Professor Layton, so. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Ryan Weimer is the lead designer at The Men Who Wear Many Hats in Chicago. Max Gentleman will be for phones, tablets, and computers later this year. What do you want to hear? Uh, Anna, what are you good at? We'll have more from PAX next week. Till then, here's some sweet, sweet jazz from the show floor. That's all for this week. I'm producer Armin Iqbali. I'm features editor Daniel Rosen. Built to Play was made with the help of... Uh, Elina Muras. Jordi DePaco. Mark Tenbosch. Samson Romero. And... Ryan Wiemeyer. For extended versions of the interview you just heard, check out our website, builttoplay.ca. We're available on Stitcher Radio and iTunes. Leave us a review so we know what we're doing and more people can find the show. But leave us a positive review because if you leave us a negative review, we'll make Bob go and, uh, you know, pitch you his game. We're usually on the air at Discover Ryerson every Saturday at 1 p.m. and rerun every Monday and Thursday, also at 1 p.m. And we're update the website every Sunday. You can find us on Twitter at built to play and me personally at Flarkon. That's F-L-R-K-C-O-N. And I'm Daniel underscore Rosen. And check out the site this week because I'm going to pitch a Mrs. Doubtfire game that you're going to want to kickstart immediately. Thank you so much for listening. Built to play.